So I have a community that I can go and run with, and then I can come back to the studio and I can work. Print friends, and welcome back to the fifth season of the Hello Print Friend podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Reynaldo Gil Zambrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the field of print media and multiples. Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your practice since 1997. If you're looking to add some pizzazz to your practice, check out their line of additive glitter. Add a little sparkle of this glitter to any Speedball fabric screen printing ink to bring a touch of shimmer to your next design. This additive glitter can be used in nearly any ratio, whether your sparkling vision is more subtle or dripping with scintillating shine. Check out the link in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Legion Paper. Legion is a fine art company representing the best papers in the world. They either stock it, source it, or make it with brands like Stonehenge, Somerset, Coventry, Reeves, Arches, and more. Legion is the best paper resource for every artist and printmaker's needs. Learn more about the variety of papers that Legion stocks at www.legionpaper.com. My guest this week is Hilary Lorenz, an interdisciplinary artist who lives and works in Abiquiu, New Mexico. We talk about the somatic experience of a 24-hour run and wintering over in huts on beaches, the exploration and repetitive nature of printmaking, a global moth migration, and what it's like to live in an arroyo. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to get moving with Hilary Lorenz. Hey, Hilary, how's it going? Hi, Miranda, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. I feel like this is a special Hello Print Friend Day in that I'm actually getting to talk to someone that not only have I met before, but I've got to be in your home, in your studio where you're recording from. And so I feel it's like uh, extra coziness uh, for today's interview. Well, it's so, it's, it's really, really nice to see you again. And I loved, yeah, that, that you got to come up here and you got to see the press and the building that I actually made, which I'm super proud of. And yeah, so it's, it's fun seeing you online as well. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's a beautiful setup and of course got to meet the dogs, which is, you know, as essential to, to, I think, to understanding you as, as a person. Yes. <laughs> The dogs are essential. They are they are attached to me, and I go everywhere with them. <laughs> yeah. Well, before we, we get into questions, would you just let people know who might be listening, who you are, where you are, and what you do? My name is Hilary Lorenz, and I am currently in Abiquiu, New Mexico, and I'm an interdisciplinary artist who primarily works with paper, and a printmaking background. Wonderful. And and so Abiquiu is kind of a special place. Um, and part of the reason why we've, we've got to meet is because it's quite close to Santa Fe, where I live. And yeah, it's sort of famously beautiful and also often known as uh, O'Keefe country. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, and it's, Abiquiu is a very small town. There are less than 400 people. Um, it is considered frontier. Um, I'm 56 miles from Santa Fe and which also means going to the grocery store is an all day affair because you're driving 120 some miles to get groceries. And it is, there's a lot of artists that live here. Um, and I have now lived here 350, three, yep, 350 days. <laughs> um, oh I, my gosh, so you're almost to I'm a full year. A year, yes. So I made a major life change. It's still terrifying some mornings when I wake up of leaving my home mm-hmm. of 30 years in New York City 
and coming to ABIQ to focus 100% on my art practice. I'm sure as we're chatting, we'll definitely get into that time and that time that you were splitting between New York and and ABIQ. But before we get into the now, would you please let me know where you grew up and what role art played in that part of your life? So I, I was born in Michigan in also a small town uh, called Montague, which was right, it's right on Lake Michigan. And as growing up, art did not play a role in my life. Um, Hmm. There was very little, little culturally going on. Um, There was one school in the, in that town at the, at the time, and the school was not um, supported by the community because there were a lot of um, retired people there that, you know, they would vote whether they want to put money into the schools and they didn't. So little by little, as I was growing up, um, everything just kind of started disappearing. You know, there was no art class, no art, no music, no theater, um, foreign languages went away. And it got to the point. Mm point that they even cut all the sports programs and you know that sports is a major component especially in in smaller communities um and parents ended up getting together to hire the coaches and try to keep the sports program so it was um not a you know large part of my growing up with the exception of a crafting that i would do with my grandmother who lived next door so it was anything from baking to needlepoint to um, building little boats with my grandfather. Um, so it was this kind of this very imaginative, you know, let's just go over to grandma's and see what we can make. Yeah. And so at what point did art then enter your story? And did you at that point think of it as distinct from the craft or did you see that as a continuation as a young kid probably as a young kid I didn't even put those two thoughts together um Uh when I started college I went to Western Michigan University and I was I was thinking I was going to study biology and to this day I don't really know where that thought came from but that's what I thought (laughs) and my second or third semester I took a design class. And that's, that's what totally changed my life was this design class. Um, and to this day, there was, you know, one assignment in particular, where, you know, we had all these magazines that we had to cut up, and we had to grid a, um, a piece of, you know, we had to grid a piece of paper, and we had to cut these up and fit everything into a grid, basically just learning how to do layout in a grid format. And it made so much sense to me. Like I loved how it put order into, I suddenly I could put order in everything, you know, not just like visually, but in my life, I liked how I could, you know, make the, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm making everything compartmentalized, <laughs> but um, you know, of just, just how to make order out of things. And from mm-hmm. that moment on, it's like, this is absolutely what I wanted to study. And um, mm. so I ended up doing, I did my undergrad in painting, um, but I was studying a lot of design. Um, there was, there was a lot of really fun things that was going on at, at Western at that time also, um, where there's one professor who worked in inflatable building these huge inflatables. So we would make these huge inflatable sculptures. He was also instrumental in a, you know, massive, talk about massive community project is in the year 2000 is to get people in Michigan who lived along the shorelines, which is 5,500 miles of shorelines, um, to put fires on the beach so that from the satellite, you would see the whole hand of Michigan, you know, with, with fire going all the way around it. Um, and I will say one. Did it work? It did. It did. That's beautiful. And the one thing, I mean, this was back, I started college some time ago, 1983. And the one 
huge thing I'd also say about Western is, you know, it was a university of like 25,000 people. Every single person was required to study computer programming. And like the (laughs) computer programming we were doing then is just like, you know, this incredible dinosaur from now. Um, But -hmm. again, that also really fed into my like, wanting to make order and sense of things. So whether you are an art major or an engineering major, you had to study computer programming. And that was phenomenal. Mm, That's so interesting. And I think knowing, for me, knowing a bit about your practice and hearing, you know, this new information to me about like the, the grid systems and the computer programming, how so much of your work explores the natural world. And while the natural world can be, you know, chaotic and unpredictable, there is order, you know, there's sense, there's balance. Like there is, I think, systems that interact with each other in very specific ways, which seems to overlap a bit, I think, with what you're saying now for these sort of early influences, early things that you were drawn to in your undergrad. Yeah, absolutely. And the... I mean, the the stronger nature influences have been more in the recent years, but it Mm. it does all align with those sort of same sense of of order, you know, even say if, Mm -hmm. you know, how things grow, or if you're looking at, you know, plant life under a microscope, everything is, you know, has this sort of system and it's very ordered. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, at what point did you make that shift then academically um, from biology to art making, like kind of officially? Um, and then is that when printmaking entered your world? Printmaking entered my world actually later when I, so what, I graduated with my degree in painting and I mm-hmm. moved to Chicago and I thought, I don't know anything and I'm a terrible artist. <laughs> Uh, uh, I just I don't know if I was feeling I I don't know if I truly thought I'm a terrible artist or I was just feeling you know really uh you know not real confident but um I thought I need to learn so much more like there is so much that I just felt Mm. I I just didn't know and um I started taking classes at the University of Illinois at Chicago and that's where I met Steve Campbell so Steve, oh, Steve was my number one influence um, in printmaking. And I have actually sitting on my desk the first print I ever made, which oh was my gosh. a little uh, three by four inch intaglio. And I just completely fell in love with intaglio. And I was at that time, me and there was one other one other person um we were in that shop 24 seven. I mean, we would bring our sleeping bags and sleep on top of the tables at night. And, um, That's great. I mean, we just were like working, working, working. And I wasn't in any part of a degree program. I just had, had signed up for classes and this printmaking really fed into my, um, my physical, like I like doing really, it was like physically demanding things and mm-hmm. print especially like carving um, and wood carving, like really fed into that, that physical demand. Um, and I just. And maybe add, the order too. Like, oh, I just, you know, like, absolutely. you know, the precision, the like you have to do X then you do Y, then you do Z. And just, you know, that really like, um, you know, it's, it's, it's the registration. I mean, all of that, I feel like could feed into that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like to have, you know, parameters. And I like to have, I like to know what the rules are ahead of time. And then I can decide, you know, mm. what rules do I mm-hmm. want to keep? What rules do I want to break? Um, but I just in life in general, I, I thrive much more if I know what, what the sort of, what the criteria is. And, um, and I feel like printmaking is very much that way. And um, not to jump around too much, but even in my years of like, teaching printmaking, I would always say to the students, follow these steps, because if you don't, you're going to end up with a big mess. And every single time the students that didn't follow, they would always come back to me and say, oh, you're absolutely right. And I have this enormous mess. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I, I 
you know, I really like that. And I was in, I was at Chicago for about two years. Um, and then I decided to apply to the university of Iowa for grad school and, um, ended up going to Iowa for grad school. And I was there for three years for my MA and MFA. So what, you said MA and MFA? Mm-hmm. What was the MA part of that? Yeah. So the university of Iowa's graduate program is 60 credit hours and it's a three year program. And yeah. you first do an MA and at the end of your MA, you write either a technical or historical thesis. And oh, okay. so the year I got in, I was the only person admitted. So I was like, wow, this is going to be really amazing. I'm the only person mm-hmm. you know, that got in this year. And, and then I don't know if this actually ever really happened or not. This is what we all believed as students is once you got in and then after your first year, they decide if you get to stay or not. And then you Uh do your MA and they decide if you can stay or not. And then you (laughs) go after you finish your MA, then you go on to do your MFA and you spend that whole time working on your thesis, um, which is Mm. obviously your visual work as well as your written thesis. And I'd have to say the hardest (laughs) hardest thing about getting my MFA was taking my thesis to the graduate office. And, and there were a number of people who worked there and they would measure, basically no one read it. I found a typo afterwards, like on the very first page, Um, (laughs) they would measure to make sure that your page numbers were in the exact, they couldn't be off a millimeter. Like they had to be off. They had to be like right on. So they would measure all your columns and borders and that's all they would do. And, um, and then I think I, I probably went there seven times to get everything like completely lined up. Cause even, you know, if it printed out from the printer, they didn't want a digital co- copy. You had to give a physical copy and they would measure, measure, measure. And if one piece was slightly out of line, you know, it would be all rejected. And so but there were people that they would not give their MFA to that had been there for six years um, because they didn't wow. like their project. Um, yeah. So it was a great, I will say it was a great education. And um, I just did tons of intaglio and tons of stone litho when I was there. Like it was amazing. Mm. Um, and coming back to science, um, I was an out-of-state student, um, and there right. were no graduate assistantships. There was no financial aid available. Um, so I ended up getting a job working as a research assistant in immunology. So the, so the while oh. I was there, I worked in immunology. Um, and that, that was a blast. That was, there's nothing quite like the first time you sequence DNA, you know, (laughs) and, and I did work about that also. So I was doing work about science and things from the lab. Yeah. Wow. How interesting, like to have that dual path, interweaving path during that really formative time in your creative process. So after you graduated, you had three years there. Is that when you moved to New York? I did. The day I graduated, um, I moved to New York. I had, I, I, that was actually when I had my first dog. Um, I got my <laughs> I've only actually had four dogs in my life, but um, yes, pack, packed up everything, uh, drove to New York. I did not know anyone there. Um, I had booked a week, you know, in a hotel. And of course, you know, pre-internet, pre-cell phone, um, Mm -hmm. village voice started looking through ads and I knew I wanted to live in the East village because previously here's a little aside. I had worked at a summer camp in Pennsylvania and on our day off, Mm -hmm. we'd hitchhike into the city. Oh my gosh. Stay out at clubs all night and then sleep in the park and hitchhike back. So I knew exactly where I wanted to live. Um, Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I couldn't, I remember the first place I looked at, um, this was in 93 and it was like a thousand dollars. There were like 23 people lined up. The tub mm. was in the kitchen, you know, the toilet was in the hallway. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm in trouble. This is going to be uh-huh. because I have no job. I have a dog. I have a week to find a place. And anyhow, I um, after three days, I did find an apartment 
And I was talking really fast to the guy who showed it to me. And it was just below Houston Street in the Lower East Side. And a lot of people were still, were pretty afraid to live south of Houston um, because it was, you know, it was a drug mecca. Um, it was also very yeah. Expensive. And I said, I have no job, but I'll pay you three months rent. And I have a dog. He's like, yeah, I don't care about that. Pay me whatever rent you want. And, you know, you're fine. <laughs> and uh, it was a great apartment. It even had an elevator, you know, in one of these old tenement buildings. Um, and then a month later, I got a studio. My studio was a former um, school classroom. And it was like $200 a month. Like, it was, it was amazing. And uh, mm. I just love every second of being in New York. It was like every day is just you know, an unfolding of something new and exciting happening. Mm. Is that just, you know, do you think because of like the sheer volume of people interested in doing things that like high concentration of people trying to do something, which I feel like is, is a good way to describe people who are in New York, that something is going to happen because there are a lot of doers in one place. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think for people who move there, they're moving there for a reason. And mm -hmm. so many people want to be the best, right? You don't, you don't move to New York and say, oh, I'm, I'm just going to go there and live. It's like, I want to be the best at what I'm doing. Or I, you know, I, mm -hmm. there's more opportunity here or, and whatever it is, whatever profession is, if it's someone who's like, I want to become incredibly rich, um, fine. Or someone's like, I want to work in the arts. I want to work in music. I, you know, what, whatever the field is. Um, but it's generally people that in my experience, you know, want to meet other people like them and mm -hmm. people that are working hard and people that, you know, want to have a really engaging life. Yeah. And so were you, how many years were you there total then? 30 years before you made your 30 years. I was going to say, 30, yeah, because if, yeah. if it was the early 90s, it would have been 30 years. How did you did you find that changed in the time that you were there? Or is does New York still have that all those wonderful things that you were talking about? There, there are absolutely all those wonderful things. And of, and of course, things change over time. Um, mm -hmm. you know, one really key thing was um, we did not have franchises. There weren't chain stores. And in 1997, oh, wow. when Giuliani was mayor, he opened the floodgates to the chain stores. So it started with like mm. video and Subway. And now I would say the biggest, I would say for me, one of the biggest disappointments in the city is Everywhere you go, it's like a Dwayne Reed or a CVS or Starbucks mm -hmm. have actually started closing down a lot. But so many franchise stores. And what was so exciting is that, you know, if somebody wanted previously, if like a family or an individual wanted to open up a store, whether it was a bodega or whether it was a right. gallery in their apartment, they could do that. And that became far more difficult to do um, because they would be kind of pushed out by the franchises, but also because the franchises could pay so much money for rent that it made yeah. it possible to, to rent spaces. So that was... Mm, that that was makes a lot of sense, of yeah. Um, and that's such a shame because it's, you know, I mean, I, having worked at many small businesses, like there really are the heart and soul of a town, a city, um, we, uh, we just were mentioning off air how Tim and I just took this big road trip and we camped in Dodge city, Kansas uh -huh. and we were driving around and there were no chains. Like it was a mate. Like I was like, I was like, we should move to Dodge. Like just the maybe they've got like a city ordinance or something against it. But it was like, there was like, it had this heart and soul. And I was like, what's going on with this little, this tiny little town in, in Western Kansas. And I was like, there's not a Starbucks here. There's not a CVS here. It was like the grocery stores were like, um, you know, like Juanita's market, you know, like, you know, these places, like local places owned by local people. And I was ready. I found, I found a, uh, a, an old bed and breakfast with seven bedrooms for $200,000 behind the <laughs> distillery. And I was like, we're That's starting an artist residency. Yeah. We're not leaving Dodge. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, it sounds like an amazing place. I think the next time I drive through, I'm going to have to stop in Dodge. 
Definitely. Like it, it's, it, it, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. It, it is absolutely. I think what gives soul to a place is people with their, with their dreams yeah. and being able to do it on a small scale yes. that, um, that just has this, this humanity to it that, you know, a Starbucks never will, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. there's nothing like, you know, walking out your door and going and getting coffee, um, at a, at a, shop that you know is just single person owned and then mm-hmm. you know, going down the street and maybe going to the bakery that you know somebody had this dream of opening up a bakery so I think yeah. uh, you know the the biggest thing is that a lot of those dreams are, are way more difficult now to do without tons of money mm-hmm. yeah yeah well, and so when you were in New York, you were teaching there for most of those 30 years? I was. I was. I taught for, well, I taught first for a year in Western New York at Alfred. And then uh-huh. I was at the Maryland Institute for four years in Baltimore. And then mm-hmm. I got an offer from Long Island University in Brooklyn. And I never thought about teaching. I never wanted to teach, mm. I had no desire to <laughs> teach. And in fact, what I really wanted to do is to be a union stagehand um, to support myself until I could support myself making art. Because also when I was in grad school, I worked for a union theater. Um, okay. So I was an electrician and I, you know, I hung lights. I did it for all the, the road shows that came through, um, through the rock and roll shows. Those were always really fun. Um, but through yeah. For music, and so when I came to New York, um, and I had asked the local union, it's like I, you know, I want in, and they're like, "Look, we like you. You work hard, but you didn't grow up in the neighborhood, and oh, your wow. parents didn't do it. And sorry, we're just not gonna, we're not gonna help you out." And a friend of mine instead became a teamster because she also wanted to to work in the in the theater. Um, and I got an internship. I was like thrilled to death. I got a hundred dollars a week as an intern, and I ran sound for at the Lucille Lortel Theater on um, Christopher Street um, for this uh, show called The Fiery Furnace. And I think it was about four or five months. And I worked every single show uh, six days a week. And I didn't care that I wasn't making any money. It was just like, I loved it so much. Um, mm. But at a certain point, it's like I really had to pay rent. So yeah, I thought it would be really easy for me to find a job. It's like, um, I knew how to do animation and video editing. And I worked really hard. And I had a lot of practical skills. I couldn't find a job to save my life. And until mm. I got a teaching job teaching second through eighth grade in a Catholic school in the South Bronx, um, computer programming. And so I did that. I love that job too. So I did that for two years. Um, And then I thought, well, if I'm going to teach, I'm going to teach at university Um, because then I can actually be, you know, working on my artwork at the same time in the same place. So I decided Mm -hmm. to, you know, go to the College Art Association conference and throw my resume in and get a job. Yeah. And what was your work like at this time? I'm pretty familiar with your more recent projects, but mm-hmm. what was uh, what was going on in, in Hillary's practice yeah. while you're moving around from these schools and, and living that life? So the one, one thing that I did as soon as I got to the city is I went to the Robert Blackburn printmaking workshop. I knew oh, about nice. Blackburn and I just, I showed up. And he completely embraced me and said, you know, come here and work. And I'm like, I don't have any money. And he's like, doesn't matter. You can take out the trash, sweep the floors. I'm like, awesome. That's what, you know, I'll do that. So I was there every day. I was working in Intaglio, both Intaglio and woodcut and combining them together a lot. I was doing a lot of four by four foot woodcuts. Wow that were all, they were still science-based. So I was doing, oh, I was like carving molecular sculpture, uh, you know, uh, 
I was drawing atoms and different molecules. So I was carving those out of wood. I was carving, um, you know, different tools from the lab out of wood, like incubators. And there'd be like hands, you know, putting things through the incubators. And these were all on mm. about four by four foot blocks. And I made in my studio, I made this six by eight foot room. It was basically a structure that you could go inside. It looked like brick walls on the outside with a, with, uh, with, um, a tar sort of tar paper roof and you would walk inside and I had printed all these different um, cells onto Pellon, which is like a thin, um, soft white material and completely covered the inside. So when you would walk in, you would be surrounded by all these like squirming cells going all over <sighs> the place. And, um, and I was, I was silk screening those from photographs that I made of cells when I worked in the lab. So when I left oh, the cool. lab, I took, well, I didn't take materials from the lab, but like a lot of photographs that I made <laughs> and I photographed yeah, yeah. equipment and things. And I use that as my source material. So I worked really heavily in using very direct science-based images, probably up until almost 2000. Hmm. That's interesting. And, and, and for you, was that kind of a coming from a fascination of the aesthetics of science or the process behind it? What was it that really made that connection for you? Yeah, it was a little bit of both. Um, and also just even this fascination of the things, um, making things seen that are unseen, for example, like what you can see under a microscope. Um, and then suddenly, you know, blowing that up really large and, you know, identifying um, these different different organisms, um, because also at the lab, I was I was, you know, I was growing cells. I was I started out doing tissue culture. Um, so I was always growing cells and counting cells. And then to be able to take those and make them into this this large scale. Um, so it was a little bit about the process of how I was working, um, as well as repeating in a way, because the work that I was doing in the lab was all very hands-on, like purifying proteins. And, you know, I wasn't writing up reports or anything like that. It was all, you know, it was all recipes. I was like following directions mm-hmm. on, mm-hmm. on, you know, how to pour a Western blot or, how to run DNA or how to purify protein. And um, so, yeah, so then I was just bringing that into the studio. And so at what point did you discover Abiquiu? Because I know before you moved out to our little corner of the world in a, in a more permanent way, you had been visiting here for quite some time. And how did that even get on your radar? So a friend of mine, Eileen Torpy, became, she, I knew her from New York. Um, she became a curator at the Santa Fe Art Institute in 2005. And she told me about this residency program. I had never been to the Southwest. And she told me okay. about the uh, uh, residency program that the Santa Fe Art Institute had. And um, she's like, you should apply for it. Um, so I applied for it. And I was selected and it was amazing. Um, you know, you actually live in the art Institute. So you're mm-hmm. essentially living in a museum and everybody has their, their own room. And it was, um, it was four weeks plus an additional fifth week um, that I, that I was staying on. And the, right when I got here, I was doing, I was doing work with, maps and um, looking at um, basically looking at land and how land was divided. And, and I wanted to go to the Bureau of Land Management. So when I went there, I picked up, it was actually a physical newspaper that listed the Mm -hmm. Sierra Club hikes. And um, I called them up and said, I wanted to go on the Sierra Club hike. And it was this at the time, now I look back, it was kind of funny. I'd never been in altitude. It was a 17-mile hike. <laughs> they were very stern, you know, asking me questions. Um, but I was, so I was telling them what my, you know, physical fitness was. 
And anyhow, I started hiking with Sierra Club every single weekend that I was that I was here. And then I would come back and then during the week work in the studio. And that's when I really started doing a lot of work about a little more like in an abstract way, but the the mountains, the landscape, my yeah. bodily experience in the landscape and how I feel like sort of traversing these these places. So someone told me about Abiquiu and they're like, before you leave, you should go to Abiquiu. And so I rented a little round stone house for a weekend, came up here and thought, wow, this landscape is absolutely beautiful. Um, you know, it's, there were double rainbows that I had never seen. Um, the yeah. Per- the, like, like New Mexico is generous with double rainbows. Like I think mean, like New Mexico just gives away double rainbows. Like it's going out of style. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. I saw a rainbow the other day that was coming straight out of the road, like a fountain. It went straight up into the yeah. air. It didn't curve over. It just went really, really wide. And I'm like, what, what is this? This is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I stay, you know, so I stayed up here for a weekend and, um, I met one of the neighbors who was building a casita for himself in an arroyo, which I have to admit at the time, I had no idea what an arroyo was or mm-hmm. exactly what it was meant by a casita besides, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So anyhow, I went back to New York and, you know, had a, just a wonderful time here working, working, working. And, you know, I always have fantasies about being somewhere else, no matter where I'm at. Mm-hmm. And it was about five years later and I was on one, like a Craigslist, you know, avoidance of everything else and having fantasies of like, I wanted to have an upstate house, um, in New York, but I really couldn't afford it. And I'm like, and let me look in New Mexico. And I see this mm. ad for the stone house that reminded me of where I was. Turned out it was the house that was being built in the Arroyo when I was there five years previously. And it looked like this amphitheater. And so yeah. for fun, I emailed to say, hey, I stayed at your house five years ago. And after a very brief phone conversation, I committed to buying the house. And oh, my gosh. <laughs> There, there's, there's a couple of things that go into it, but I think we, we don't have the time for this podcast. Uh, but I, um, yeah, I committed to buying it. I bought the house. Um, I came out for about a week after that to just see what I had actually bought because I bought it sight unseen off Craigslist and um, figured either I paid way too much for a couple acres of land or, you know, I just, you know, hit the jackpot. Um, mm-hmm. and it felt like I, I hit the jackpot. So the next summer I came out and I started building my studio and that was what I was super excited about to actually like physically build my own studio. So yeah, yeah all because of my friend Eileen and her new job that brought me out here. I want to make sure that we have a chance to explore and I feel like it feel kind of relates to, um, you know, New Mexico as well in its own way. And, and I know sort of your time that you spend in the woods and in nature is this relationship that you have to the corporeal experience. I feel like you're, there's something about your practice that's really interested in that embodied human experience. And as you spoke to before, you know, this is something that you're interested in, in the actual printmaking process, but then also you're someone who, um, runs marathons and builds studios and hikes. And so that embodied somatic experience, I think, is somewhere in your practice because it's such a part of where you, who you are. And so how does that show up for you? It is, so that is a huge part of my practice. And it's it really started when... I I think I first came out to New Mexico in 2005 and started making work on the land. Well, I I sort of, I sort of phrase it as on the landscape, but it was always after doing these hikes. But the one thing that I was also, Mm. I'm drawing and when I'm working, I would be counting like each, like whether I was making a little brush stroke or whether I was carving something, I would be, I would be counting those marks, but I would also be retracing every footstep I had just made, whether it was getting to the top mm. of a mountain 
or if it was like a long training run. And it really took me a couple of years to kind of figure out, okay, what I want to make work that is based on my going into the wilderness or, you know, I want, I'm trying to figure out how to marry these all together. Right. And that was like, what exactly am I trying to do and what I'm trying to say? And that was kind of a difficult thing to figure out in the beginning, but more and more. So what I was, what I would do, um, is I, I would find I would not be able to actually even make artwork until I just had some type of exhaustive physical experience. Hmm. So, um, I was, yes, I was running a lot of races in New York. Um, I was felt like I was like, you know, I would run between depending on the year, you know, time of year between like 50 and 75 miles a week. Um, and then going hiking. And then I would, I started doing, I did this residency in Tasmania where I lived in a park rangers hut for three months completely, you know, isolated in the woods. And then I could go on multi-day backpacks as this is my, my base. So then I was really looking at, okay, is my practice, the things that I am making, like the physical objects afterwards, the prints, the drawings, really, again, everything on paper, or is it also like these sort of pilgrimages that I'm doing into the wilderness and doing them solo. So it was a lot of kind of working that back and forth. And I still, you know, work on that back and forth. I would say one of the um, real highlights where that all came together is I was an artisan resident for the Yukon Art Center. It's a partnership between Yukon Art Center, Parks Canada, uh, U.S. Parks, where I I was the the residency was backpacking the Chilkoot Trail, which is a Klondike Gold Rush Trail that starts in Dyee, Alaska, and goes to Bennett Lake, British Columbia. So it's like you're oh you're, you're hiking. So you know I'm like have everything on my back, right? And I'm carrying everything with me. Um, and I mean, one of the first things I thought of is like, well, I'm not someone who sketches in nature. That's, you know, that's not what I do. I go and go through these sort of physical transformations. And then I come back to the studio and work. But that was like, that was a, a huge kind of monumental thing, because I was asked to live out in the wilderness and, you know, was rewarded for how living long did that? It was three yeah. weeks. Um, so okay. I was out there for three weeks and I ended up spending a full, just about a full month between Alaska and British Columbia, um, and, uh, being in Whitehorse, Yukon. And now I have this intense drive to, to go up there and live for a period of time. I keep looking, it's like, okay, how can I go back and, and live up there for a while? Um, so I would, I would put myself sometimes through these situations, right? Another one, um, I wrote a, there's a residency on Cape Cod. There are these beach shacks. And the definition of a shack is you can take it down and put it up in one day because they're basically just nailed Okay. It. Even though they've been there since yeah. about the 30s. And they were put there for when the sailors would have a shipwreck. And if they could make it to the shore alive, they would have some kind of structure to go into. And I've stayed in this twice, once in the summer, but once in the winter. And the first one was in the winter. And it was 25 degrees inside the house with mm. this really barely, clearly barely working uh, wood burning stove because my water and everything would be totally frozen in the middle in the, in the morning when I would get up. Um, but it was absolutely breathtaking because I was like right on the Atlantic Ocean and on, you know, the most eastern part of the U.S. And at the same time, I was training for the Boston Marathon. So I would like I would hold my breath, change my clothes because I didn't want to have to like switch my clothes out to go running because it was so cold and then I would go running and then I would come back and then at that time because I was a base camp I was working on on drawings and then later came back and worked on prints so yes I would specifically seek or create these events of backpacking camping um like I ran a 24 hour race, which I will do again yeah. this, this new year's where you just run around in a one, one mile loop for 24 hours nonstop. Um, 
because it also really, it suits my personality very well. And I, I really like doing this repetition, which is the same thing when I get back to my studio. It's like once I've made a carving, I have to stop myself in, I make small additions, like usually not more than 15, but I really have to stop myself because I am just like, once I hit production mode, I can just endlessly go. So my physical nature, my nature of wanting to do things repetitive, wanting to do things physical, um, to like really be able to feel my materials as well. So Mm. when I come back from an event, when I'm carving, I have that event just, you know, just seared into my cells. And I'm thinking about it while I'm carving. I'm not necessarily carving the event. Um, I've been doing a lot of things with water since I've been out in New Mexico. Um, Canoes, waterfalls, working with a lot of blue and indigo. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's it's, it's also tracing to this interior, I don't know if it's a fantasy or reality of like, you know, I want to canoe the entire Hudson river or, you know, I like, I love this romantic idea. And I built a canoe in my studio, in my house, in my, well, apartment, not a house, my apartment in Brooklyn um, before I came out here. And I'm like, I just want to build a canoe and get in it and just paddle away, you know? So, um, So, yeah, I'm not sure if that completely answered it, but I would not be able to make artwork if I did not physically put myself through some type of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and what I'm thinking of is, is it's in a way using your body as another material, you know, in the way that you need to kind of mix your inks before you roll them out, you know, I mean, you need to, you need to make sure that Hillary is in the right state and that there's something about the, the flesh suit that we all carry around. There's something about you coming with this flesh suit that has had this specific set of experiences that then contributes to the outcome. And by changing yourself, you're changing the outcome of the artwork. It's just really interesting. And and it's such an integrated way of thinking about art making, which I think is true for any artist, but there's a lot of separation often between what I'm doing and what I'm making are kind of two different things, but they're, they're, they can't be. It's all one essence in, in action. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's also one of the big driving factors of it's like, okay, I'm going to give it a shot where I leave New York for a period of time and just, and move out here and where I'm just working in my studio. I don't have to worry about another job at this point. Um, at least temporarily. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, (laughs) and I have access to the mountains all around me. Um, also people to go hiking with. And the (laughs) first I was like really sad. All my running friends had left and, um, oh, yeah. so I also, you know, I, so on top of everything, I have a master's of science in exercise science and exercise physiology. And I train athletes. I train, well, not just athletes. I train people. I train runners. I train people in strength. So I started training friends out here. And all they had to say was, you know, I've always wanted to try running. I'm like, excellent. I'll get you going. So I have cultivated in the last several months, um, this running community, as well as this kettlebell, kettlebell weightlifting community. So I have a community that I can go and run with, and then I can come back to the studio and I can work. Um, mm, yeah, because community, I, I'm going to like jump to the side a second, but, um, you know, the one thing I love about printmaking is it's a Generally, you work in a community print shop, right? A lot of times we're all together. We may not be talking, but, you know, we work together around other people. Where I live is super isolated. Um, most yeah. people are alone. They want to be alone. I don't, I don't want to be alone. So 
I build this community where we may not be making artwork together, though I invite people to come to my studio and make art, but it's like we work out together. So we go running mm-hmm. together. Um, and I have, I have one friend who he's like, Hey, do you know what this distance, distance is? And I said, well, it's 13 miles around this one loop. And he's like, you know, do you think I can do a half marathon? And I'm like, absolutely. When do you want to do it? Let's do it. You know, we'll do it together. And, but I'm already dreaming up. It's like, I want to make these things ceremonial around his run. So like when he comes back, whether it's uh-huh. like, I've, you know, just printed a t-shirt or a sign or something, but it's like kind of moves into this, you know, bringing this sort of practice together, this print practice, as well as this uh, workout community practice. Um, So that, you know, when I'm not with that group exercising, then I can be alone in the studio working and I'm totally fine. Right. Yeah. That makes total sense that it's, it's about finding that balance in order to like feed one part of you so you can then feed another. And, and yeah, that makes total sense. I'm, I'm wondering as we're, we're talking, you know, you're talking about these kind of extreme situations, you know, like the the 24 hour run, the, the being in the woods for hiking the length of Canada for three weeks. Um, and, uh, the being in the cabin, where it's, it wasn't a cabin, what was the word? The, the hut? The is, that, is that what you said? Was, yeah, the hut. Being in the hut where it's 25 degrees inside. And those are pretty, you know, physically extreme circumstances. When you're going into it, like when you're like, okay, I'm, I know I'm going to do this 24-hour run. Like you've, so you have one coming up. Do you at any point know that there will be a moment where you regret it. Do you ever regret it? And do you like when you're in it and, and I, and I think I'm, asked, I'm talking from sort of personal experience. Like when I take something on that I think is going to be really difficult, like I'll know there's a moment where I'm like, Oh, what did I do? But I'll know that that moment's transient and I'll enjoy leading up to it and I'll join and I'll enjoy it afterwards. But sometimes there'll be a moment where I'll question past self like past Miranda's decision-making that you've, you know, signed up to do a run when you're not in very good shape or um, move to Thailand by yourself in the middle of a pandemic, you know, like that kind of thing. I have never, ever regretted anything. And going to, you know, the idea about, again, about planning, right. With printmaking, very ordered. I love planning, um, which is another reason why I also really love coaching. Um, when mm-hmm. I'm going into, like, for example, when I was hiking the Chilku Trail, um, I was going to have two uh, airlift drop packages uh, for food. And so three months ahead of time, I needed to know what food I was going to have. And I had to pack it up and I had to mail it there. So I love to calculate exactly how many calories do I need per day and how many times a day am I going to eat and what is the lightest food for those calories and then to put them (laughs) in Ziploc bags and label each one with a date on it and put it in a Uh box and be like, okay, here's, you know, whatever, 30,000 calories and I kind of want it to taste good. Um, and then I ship it off. So I will go into all, any of these, um, very prepared. Now, when I just Mm. ran in, um, the three days that I ran in, um, in Oregon, I, I, there was the, that was more of a bigger, I'm not quite sure what's going to happen. Cause I, I admit I will go into these races. I don't, I'm not there just to finish. Like I want to win. <laughs> uh huh. You know, yeah. like, what's the point of racing if you don't want to win or w- at least when you're mm-hmm. age group or at least, you know, otherwise just go out and run, you know, and that's fine too. Yeah. But I want to do the very best that I can. And since moving to altitude and it's a hundred degrees at altitude and it's really dry. It's like my running got terrible and I was struggling, struggling, struggling. So I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen 
But I mean, I know I can knock out 40 miles. I just don't know what it's going to look like. But I know what calories I need. I know what clothes I need. I know how to prepare. And I'll go. And it was an absolute blast. And, and just getting into that cooler weather and the lack of altitude, you know, was a huge shift. But it it goes like into the planning. I've never been where it's like, oh my gosh, I'm so cold to get me out of here. I need to escape. I need, okay. I'm like, yeah. I embrace, you know, it's, I don't know. I think a lot of people that especially like will backpack a lot. It, they always say, you know what? It has to, your preparation and your clothing. Um, mm-hmm. If that is in place, it's going to be very enjoyable. Um, if, a person hasn't prepared and I would never go into the mountains unprepared. There's absolutely no way because the risk is dying. Right. Yeah. It's pretty high stakes. Yeah. So it's like, you know, say you're going to climb a, going to Colorado to climb a 14 er because I really want to make work about this one particular 14 er Um, you know, I'm not going to start climbing at 10 o'clock in the morning because I'll end up getting struck by lightning at two in the afternoon because I'm still up there. Right. I need to be down by noon. Um, so being, being prepared and, you know, taking it all seriously and knowing that if you, if, if I don't do that, yeah, that would, the outcome would be, be the end of me. (laughs) Yeah. And so when, when you are in those moments because there must be moments of of physical discomfort you know you spoke to being in the hut and you know needing to change and that kind of thing psychologically for you is that just a I'm just having a quintessential part of this experience that doesn't have a value it's just intrinsic to the experience and that's why it's not what actually makes you say oh why did I do this I'm so cold you know (laughs) No, I think it, it really is just intrinsic to the experience. Um, it's expected, right? You know, it's in the right. middle, middle of winter and, you know, you're right on the ocean. Um, and I think, you know, for anybody, like, I, you know, I'll look at the people that, you know, take a very small sailboat and sail around the world. Um, mm-hmm. that, and I look at that, I'm like, wow, that's absolutely amazing. That's so intense. That would be so difficult, Um, so, and to them, it's, they're like, well, no, I'm really planned and I have it all together and I know what to do. And, um, so I think that it becomes then very individual, but the the only thing I have slight, and I, and I start laughing about it because it's like, oh, this is gonna be really hard. I'm a terrible cyclist, right? I, I'm not excited about riding a bike. I ride a bike to commute. And in fact, after I moved out here, um, like the the post office, it's 12 miles for me to get my mail. And I'm like, this is insane to be driving a car all the time. I don't, it's so, you know, it's, it's a waste of gas. It's, you know, mm-hmm. environmentally unfriendly. So, you know, I got a bike. So I ride to the post office to get my mail and come back. Well, and so I like, I bike for a purpose, and in New York, I commuted everywhere by bike. So a friend of mine has just asked me to do a seven-day AIDS, AIDS benefit ride from San Francisco to L.A. Um, so in a week, we'll do 545 miles. And I'm like, oh, my God, 545 miles on a bike. It's going to kill me. <laughs> it's like, okay, you know. But but then the other side of my brain switches on and because I'm like, I would rather run that than I would bike it. And right. I would rather run yeah. that than bike it. Um, but it's like, okay, let's, this is going to be fun. What is it that we need to do to make it fun? I mean, it will be fun. I know it's going to be a blast, but it's like, okay, the number of hours of training and my clothes and what bike I'm going to ride and, you know, and putting all the things together. And then it's like, yeah, it's so awesome. I'm so glad I'm doing this. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, In the time we've got left, I want to make sure we get to touch on a little bit some of the community engaged projects that you've done, I'm thinking, you know, specifically of like moth migration, but I know there've been others. Mm-hmm. How does, when did that come into your practice and and what are some of those that are ongoing now that you might want to promote that are yeah. still, you know, have a chance for people to interact with? Well, the huge one is the moth migration project. And that started, I founded that in 2017 um, as part of, I was asked, 
I was commissioned to make a printed paper installation, which is really my specialty of making sort of transforming rooms into something else with, with printed and cut paper um, on pollinators. And just to save on time, I'll just say, you know, I decided to work with a moth and I knew I wanted to get 40,000 moths to transform the space. And the number was based Mm. on the number of moths a grizzly bear could eat in a day, which was measured at Yellowstone park by the Rangers. And thousand moths in a day. Mm-hmm. Yep. And moths are, Oh my are gosh, they're so busy. Right. And, and they're mostly fat, right? Moths are, are fat. So oh, that's, yeah. they just pull them out of the rocks and, and eat those. So I thought this is something that I can't do on my own. And I thought, could I crowdsource artwork? I'm like, is this a ridiculous idea? And I talked to someone who does um, massive, like citywide, um, you know, international um, interactions with the public and and artwork. And I said, look, I'm thinking about um, putting out a call to invite people to make a minimum of five moths that are, it's an addition. So I'm really looking at printmakers, but you know, at this point, people draw them and they make them identical. Sometimes people send me two or 300. And I said, I, I want to ask for the moths and, um, and see what happens. So I, and she's like, I think it's a great idea. So I wrote, originally, I just wrote a call for entries on my blog. And I have a lot of friends in Australia because I've shown and traveled a lot in Australia. Mm-hmm. So the next day I had like 200 people already committed to it. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is actually really going to work. So I had to quickly get a system together where I kept, I made a form. So there was a database and every single person's submission is put into an archival envelope and they're all labeled. And after every exhibition, they they go back in. So I do have over 20,000 and the moth migration project is it's a community-based collection um, of artists making moths all together. Um, and it's created this whole dialogue around the environment, but also around a lot of very personal stories that people have shared with me. And it was first shown mm-hmm. at 516 Arts in Albuquerque. Um, and then it was in New Brunswick, Canada. And then it was in Texas. And then it traveled through Australia and it was just at the Denver Botanic Gardens and it continues to grow and it is ongoing. There's now a website called Moth Migration Project. Um, At this point, um, I need to make a lot of decisions because it's a huge administrative project and I've also completely funded it myself. So I fund the archives. I pay people to sort these. um, I pay for the web people, you know, and... So, you know, to sit down and really talk about or even put like a board together, do I want to make this into a nonprofit? Um, Do I want to have help from an organization? Because it is so amazing. Um, I wrote grants to make, um, to give families um, these print kits so they could have moth migration print kits for free. And then, and then there would be artist facilitators who teach them printmaking over Zoom. I originally wrote this during covid um, and, you know, using, using art and using the moths as a way of bringing people together, it could be used in schools of teaching about science. It could be used about teaching about design, about the environment, about, you know, again, just about building community. So that is a yeah. huge ongoing project that just keeps growing and growing. That's so exciting. And so what's the, the uh, URL for the website? So it's mothmigrationproject.net. Cool. Very, very cool. Yeah. And there's information about if people want to join. Excellent. And so, and where else can people find you? So they can find me on my, on Instagram at Stone Trigger Press. And Stone Trigger Press got its name from I Live on Trigger Drive. And I built my studio out of stone. So it's it's no big giant romantic thing. It's just like <laughs> a bigger press. Um, yep. 
And my website is hillarylorenz.com. So people can find me in any of those places. Very cool. Well, Hillary, I'm so glad that we live in the same state and that we get to actually see each other in person. And I hope we get to do that again soon. And it's been really fun learning more about your background and, and chatting about things and you being a total trooper with technical difficulties. It's been really, really nice. Oh, Miranda, thank you so much for this. And I just really enjoy talking with you. And it's so wonderful to see you again. And I can't wait to see you in person. So thank you. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friends sent you. But as always, the very best way you can support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week. When we continue what's turning out to be a lovely annual tradition here at Hello Print Friend, in which we partner with Print Austin and I interview some of the artists who are going to be featured in the 5x5 exhibition at that event. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.